Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, a conversation with one of the authors who are coming to the 2019 Kentucky Book Fair on November 16th at the Kentucky Horse Park's All Tech Arena. Our first conversation is with Casey Sepp. Her book is Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. It's gotten great reviews and critical acclaim, and we're going to be glad to host her at the Kentucky Book Fair. Ms. Sepp, talk with Kentucky Book Festival director, Sarah Volpe. Welcome, Casey Sepp, to Kentucky. Thanks so much. Um, We're so glad to have you here. Casey's the author of Furious Hours, um, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Um, And it's billed as a true crime book, which I had never read true crime um, beyond, you know, In Cold Blood, Truman Capote. And I've heard so much about it through David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon. I see he blurbed your book on the back. Um, But reading this, I was really pulled in because of the way it's written, because it Mm. feels to me like from page one, um, it felt like fiction, you know, because Mm. of the way you lay out the scene um, and the the time and place and context. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't like journalism so much, um, straight journalism. It was like, oh, wow, I feel like I'm reading a novel, (laughs) you know? Yeah, that's very kind of you to say. And I think that for folks who really just love true crime, this is probably an odd book, and it feels more familiar to folks who read novels or literary biography or political history or even economic history because um, there there are just different pockets of that kind of writing in the book. And in fact, once you get past the prologue, there's a little bit of natural history too. So it's about much more than the the murders that are at the heart of the story. And I think that's a reflection of what interests me as as a writer. You know, I wrote the kind of book that I want to read and um, the kind of book that that follows a story in all directions, not just one. Absolutely. So I think true crime is is one genre, but there are some others at work in the book too. Yeah, for sure. Because you paint the characters in a really, really um, a broad context and a specific context. So that worked really well for me to understand the time they were living in in the 70s in the South, in Alabama, but also the larger implications, the social implications, political stuff, you throw in, um, you know, even running for political races, the lawyer of the Reverend William Maxwell, which was very fascinating. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the sections of the book and kind of what happens in each section? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful to frame it as character. And the truth is the book has three sections, each one of which centers on a particular character. And Probably a lot of readers come to this book because of Harper Lee, and her section is the final third of the book. And um, she got very interested in this crime story and tried to write her own book about it. So she is a huge part of it. But of course, she arrived on the scene long after these things had already happened and these lives had already started to unfold. And like many writers, you know, she just came to document the events. She didn't live through them. So the first two thirds of the book is about the crime story that that caught Harper Lee's interest. And the first section is a kind of biographical portrait of the Reverend Willie Maxwell, who was a rural Baptist minister born in one of the most rural counties in Alabama, born in Coosa County. And 
you know, he served in the army during World War II and he came home and he worked at a cotton mill and he worked sharecropping and he worked for a rock quarry and he worked pulpwooding and he had all these jobs, but he was most well known for his, his job as a minister and quite uh, well known for his preaching and sought after for pulpits around Coosa and Tallapoosa County. And all of that changed in 1970 when he was accused of killing his wife. And he would go on over the next seven years to be accused of killing his second wife, his brother, his nephew, and a stepdaughter. And so the first third of the book is his life and his story and the story of those crimes. But you mentioned a lawyer, and the second third of the book is this lawyer, Tom Radney, who represented the Reverend for 10 years and represented him in a series of criminal investigations and criminal trials, but also um, in over a dozen civil cases because the motive for those murders, they were all five family members of the Reverend obviously, but he held these lucrative life insurance policies on all the individuals. So he needed a lawyer who would help him reclaim those insurance policies and, um, you know, get the settlements and and make the money that he was owed. And so the same lawyer had represented him for over 10 years. And that lawyer, I think the reason he's such a kind of important figure in the book, um, he had this interesting political life, which you've alluded to. And so his life story, let me talk a lot about the Wallace years of um, Alabama's history and about the kind of shifting tectonic plates of the national political parties on issues of race and taxation and any number of complicated things. But that lawyer, I think, um, is, is kind of most distinguished for the fact that when the reverend was gunned down at the funeral of his last victim, so he was murdered in front of 300 people, the reverend's own lawyer then agreed to defend the man who'd killed the reverend. Right. So he took the case, you know, having represented the reverend, he then took the case of the vigilante. And so he's the second part of the book. And it's, it's again, a kind of biographical portrait of him and his political career and his style as a lawyer and um, this particular case that he was so well known for. Um, And it's only the last third of the book where we get the same treatment of Harper Lee and learn about what made her a writer and the kinds of stories she was interested in and then really sit down with her when she tried to shape the story of the Reverend into a book. Um, so, so that's really right. It's, it's these three distinct sections. And obviously these folks have a lot in common. They were all born around the same time in small southern towns, and yet their lives were you know, circumscribed in very different ways by gender and race and socioeconomic status. And so as much as they have in common, um, the reason the book is these three distinct sections is you know, they, there's a lot that's different about their lives too, and the right. way they intersect is, is really quite brief. Right, absolutely. Well, I thought it was fun when I was reading about Radney. First of all, the fact that he represented both men kind of drew me to the book because I was reading about the book, I guess when it was released in May, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I was reading about the book before I got a copy in hand. Mm. And I was like, there is no way that lawyer took on both of those cases. You know, you talked about the writing (laughs) has the feel of a novel. Obviously, in some ways, the story itself has the feel of fiction. And, you know, quite a few People, when they've come to talk to me about it, have just said, you know, I, I really didn't believe it was true. Yeah. And it's so it's crazy even before you bring up Harper Lee. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. this story was already just um, really strange. And we haven't even gotten to um, some of the kind of strange stories that were told about the Reverend. You know, the other thing that made this case so odd is that... Um, you know, once this, you know, this is an African-American man who in the 1970s was accused of murder but never convicted of it and, you know, who perpetrated over and over again a series of very lucrative um, insurance frauds. And, you know, a lot of folks wonder how he could get away with it. There was such animosity at the time towards black defendants and 
um, you know, sometimes folks just want to know how he got away with it. And what the people around this part of Alabama decided was that he was getting away with it because he was a voodoo priest. Right. And he was able to manipulate juries and he was able to manipulate the police and he could kill without leaving any trace of himself. And so another aspect of the story that's so strange is, you know, the, the reverend has a lot in common with Boo Radley. You know, people were afraid of him and they told stories about him and thought he had all sorts of powers and that he used potions and, you know, you couldn't look him in the eye or he could turn into a black cat. Right. And there's just this <laughs> level of fear and hysteria about him um, already, you know, that the first third of the book looks at and tries to figure out, you know, why why people started to tell these kinds of stories and, um, you know, what how, how actually could he have been perpetrating these crimes and what was difficult for the police investigating them. And even for the insurance companies, there's a little bit of a history of the life insurance industry because I felt like readers needed to understand how someone like the Reverend could operate. It right. was a time when the life insurance industry is kind of like the Wild West. You could take out policies without people knowing. And so long as the denominations were small and you went with different companies, you could really just rack up $1,000 here, $3,000 there, $20,000 somewhere else. And so, you know, all of those pieces come together for this story, which again, seems so unbelievable. And then on top of it, you say, well, then Harper Lee was going to make it her second book. Right. And she spent nine months in this town living there, interviewing people, investigating the case and was trying to write her own in cold blood. So right. you said, you know, one of the true crime books you've read is Capote's. And so I think it's it's really incredible, the story of their friendship. You know, they had grown up together. He wasn't born in Monroeville, Alabama, but he spent some time there as a child and spent summers there as an adolescent. So they knew one another, and she had gone to Kansas with him to help him write in cold blood. And so she had a real template for what she was going to do with the Maxwell case. And um, that's why, I mean, to me, it's just really, you know, she's the cherry on the on the Sunday. There's yeah. already so much richness to the story that, um, you know, I was hoping readers would have the experience of getting to her section of the book and having been so gripped by the crime story that they forgot there was going to be this whole kind of second act, which is Harper Lee, the writer, trying to figure out how to shape it into a book. Right. I think that's why the three sections are so... Um, they're so fun and engrossing because they feel like separate books almost but then of mm. course everything connects and um i was reading an article earlier this morning from uh the washington post by john glassy and he's talking about the harper lee section in the book and he said uh, she also seems to have struggled with how to depict the truth which is not just stranger than fiction but especially when compared to the way most mainstream narratives deal with race and racism also more complex and I guess that's what he's talking about the furious hours she spent trying to work on this book and then she couldn't figure out how to do it you know because the truth really was stranger than fiction I mean what a project to try to take on yeah I think it must have been very frustrating for her because of course we've just done this you know I we, we talk about the story of the reverend and this crazy fact that the same lawyer defended him and the man who murdered him and I think the years that Harper Lee was working on this book, which she was gonna call the Reverend, over and over again, she had the experience of people saying, that's such a great story. It's gonna be a bestseller. It's gonna be great. And of course, it's very easy for people to say that, right. but very hard to sort of sit down and do the work. Yeah, and no pressure, it so, right? Right, no <laughs> pressure. And on top of that, she'd won the Pulitzer, so there was some expectation that the book wouldn't just be pulpy and gory, but that it would have integrity and that it would be beautiful and that it would be critically successful too. And I think when it came to Harper Lee, the problem was it's a great story, but it's not the kind of story 
anyone expected from the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. And it was a tricky time to be telling a story like this. You know, it's it's black on black crime. Um, it's, you know, a black serial killer, which is statistically so unlikely that she must have worried about kind of elevating a non-representative case. And right. some of some of the aspects of the story are, are really representative. You know, um, these are, uh, for the most part, you know, lower class black victims and and quite often true crime books ignore the kind of statistically representative victims right. and they go for sexy or sensational cases or Ted you know, Bundy. E- Ted Bundy. <laughs> right, you know the same serial killer stories get told or mm-hmm. even within cold blood, you know, that kind of crime where a whole family is murdered by strangers, you yeah. know that kind of home invasion is just thankfully not that common. You right. know, we we know more about the kind of statistics of homicide now and who's more likely to be killed and you know another way that the genre often misrepresents thing is you know quite often murder victims know the individual who murdered them and so in that way she found this case that was representative and that would be an interesting way to look at the reality of crime but I just think it was tricky for her as the author of To Kill a Mockingbird you know she had to some people's mind, written a children's book, you know, written a book that had been instantly canonized in schools. And, you know, you were never going to teach the reverend to seventh graders. It just is not an age appropriate story. And, you know, for the woman who had given, given the nation this, you know, interesting figure, Atticus Finch, this heroic small town lawyer who confronted moral difficulties. And, you know, over and over again, there were just generation after generation of lawyers who said they became a lawyer because of Atticus Finch. And, you know, here here she was going to look at a much trickier figure. Yeah. You know, Tom Radney thought of himself as an Atticus Finch, but these were complicated cases and his political career had been complicated too. And, you know, I think Part of the problem when you're writing a true story is that there aren't straightforward heroes and villains. Yeah, And absolutely. every individual can be heroic and every individual can be villainous and the same person can be complicated depending on which scene you decide to write or you know which version of their role in the community you choose to write about. And I think in all of those ways, it was really difficult for her. Yeah, yeah I, think, and, oh, I think that's part of why um, the Reverend was interesting too, is because he was married three times over the course of the right. It was three times. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so he must. And he was charismatic. He was a good-looking guy. Right. He obviously, despite the voodoo and the rumors attached to him, and the fact that he, you know, did you know murder these people, he still was getting married, having kids, had a family life. Um, so I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around how someone can be both, but it, it's so often the case, you know? Sure. You are the hero and the villain, and in fiction, it's just a little easier to kind of set a boundary between the two, Sure, you know? But when you're looking at a real person, it's like, oh, wow, we have this strange capability to operate in both worlds, and there's right. this suspension of disbelief that's happening for people, you know? Yeah, and I don't want to spare Harper Lee this kind of scrutiny because, of course, you know, the part of the book that's about her life um, is tricky because, you know, a couple of times now I've done book events and I've had someone say, you know, gosh, I just found Harper Lee's life so sad. And, you know, sometimes they mean different things. Sometimes they just mean she struggled with drinking or depression and that was hard for them to read about. But a couple of people have just said to me straightforwardly, you know, they thought she was a civil rights activist. And, you know, Mockingbird was, they felt like such a progressive book that she must have just, you know, 
been a freedom rider and she must have participated in marches and she must have just been at the forefront of the movement. And that's simply not true. Yeah. And, you know, her book contributed a great deal to this country's conversation about race and the kind of progress we've made around equality and, and justice. But she herself never spoke publicly in favor of the movement. And she right. didn't march and she didn't register voters and she didn't do the kinds of things we associate with civil rights activists. And, you know, she had certain notions about the the role the artist plays in society and, you know, how much of an activist they should be. But it's just been interesting to me, you know, there's a there's a certain kind of reader who, you know, believes that Harper Lee was a saint. And no one is a saint for them. I mean, there right. are, of course, some canonical saints, and that's a whole other question about how the church <laughs> canonizes them and how they right. live. And, you know, I just think for some readers, the experience they had wrestling with Atticus Finch when Ghost at a Watchman came out is the one that they're having about Harper Lee. And they realize she was a human being, she was flesh and bone, and, you know, she was complicated. And, you know, her life, her life's course was really altered by Mockingbird, and it made it hard for her to produce another book. And her politics, I think, were just more complicated than most folks realize. And right. So I just think, you know, it's another way that these three sections, as distinct as they are, kind of operate the same way, because you're forced to look at the kind of whole person, whether it's the Reverend Maxwell or Harper Lee. And, you yeah. know, I try not to overstate that. Obviously, no one ever accused Harper Lee of murder. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. she is not, you know, nor was she accused of insurance fraud. She hated paying taxes. So there's some question of, you know, how, how much she tried to dodge her taxes. But um, <laughs> there, there's there's no accusation like that in her life. But, you know, there are a lot of questions about the, the roles she could have played or should have played or um, was thought to have played in various social justice movements. Right. But again, I guess what people don't think, too, is Harper Lee published that one book and then her life completely changed. Yeah. You know? Gosh, I mean, I think of her, I thought I thought of her a lot over the four years I was working on the book. But the truth is, I've just thought of her so much since my book came out in May. And um, Look, Furious Hours has, has done well. And I'm grateful for every single person who's read it and every bookseller who's sold it and um, all of these wonderful literary institutions like the, the book festival this fall who will um, encourage folks to read it. But, you know, Mockingbird just succeeded on on a kind of once in a lifetime scale. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. Harper Lee was 34 when Mockingbird came out and she had written some for the college newspaper and the college literary magazine, but she had never published. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. she had never published a story. She This was her first book. And it just succeeded beyond everyone's wildest expectations. Yeah. And it did that. And then the movie came out with Gregory Peck. And right. so, you know, it's just, it's it's not even zero to 60, it's zero to 600 light years. You know, mm-hmm. it's just this incredible speed and trajectory. And I think that um, that part of her story is just very human for me now. And um, I just think a lot about what it was like for her in the weeks and the months after the book came out. And, you know, she lived long enough that, Truly, you know, six decades after that book was published, people would still want to write her letters and say that it had changed their life. Right, yeah. And it made them want to be a lawyer or it made them want to be a writer or it taught them to be more patient and loving with people who are different than they are. And so it's just incredible. You know, if you were going to have to write one book, you you couldn't do better than having written Mockingbird. Yeah, Um, But I think that's another way that 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 kind of final section of the book tries to really reckon with her as a living breathing human being and Mm -hmm. and what her life was like before and after that book and how it changed the trajectory of her career yeah because we can turn authors into these mythic 
you know, uh, people that we forget they're people, you know? Yeah, it's, sure. Writing a book isn't easy. You said this one took you four years, right? Yeah, which was... is, you know, as far <laughs> as it goes, not too shabby, but right, yeah. you know, I just say, right, I mean, it's so funny. I really, Harper Lee hated press and publicity. It's so funny. She's friends with Capote, who just yeah, like would, he loved would have, it. right, exactly, <laughs> like would have started a newspaper in order to get to talk about himself in it. Um, but, you know, no one, no one seems to have ever explained to Harper Lee that, you know, her strategy was really just self-sabotage by not talking about herself. It only made people more curious about her. Absolutely. And so, you know, part of what happens after Mockingbird comes out is she just generates more and more interest in her life by not talking about it. Right. And she really didn't think that authors should be celebrities. So she, you know, I, I think thought there was some pure notion of the artist who never spoke of their work and lived with a kind of mystique and intrigue and... Um, you know, for that reason, she didn't do a lot of interviews and um, was just very private. I think it's wrong to say she was reclusive because, of course, one of the beautiful things about getting to write Furious Hours was just learning how personable and genial she was and how easily she could charm a stranger because she did all these interviews and she got to right. know folks in this town. And she just made such a warm impression, same as she did in Kansas when, when she was helping with In Cold Blood. So she wasn't antisocial or reclusive. She just didn't like to talk about herself. She right. didn't like to do press and she didn't want to be subject to the kind of scrutiny or invasive questioning that I think most of us, you know, engage in for good reason we just want to know about writers who write things that move right. us and we just want to know about their lives and she just um, thought yeah everyone else is more interesting than she was <laughs> yeah right? i think probably yeah certainly or you know that somehow you would kind of like wound the aura of the art if yeah. you bothered to learn anything about the artist so, yeah. yeah yeah it's funny the uh the promo around the book and i guess even on the front flap it uses the word obsessively Harper Lee wrote obsessively she researched obsessively and yeah I guess that makes sense for anyone who's taking on a project like like her book or your book but I thought it was kind of funny because don't we want our writers to be obsessed with their subject totally yeah yeah so I don't think that word is used pejoratively <laughs> yeah, and, good. Um, yeah I mean look obsessions are really interesting the truth is Harper Lee was obsessed with true crime yeah so part of the things she said about why she went to Kansas with Capote she agreed to go because she had always been interested in crime and you know she had gone to law school and was within a few weeks of graduating so she had studied criminal law and her father was a lawyer and her one of her older sisters um, had just been obsessed with the Leopold and Loeb case so yeah. the case that became Hitchcock's film Rope um, right this kind of ubermensch story of two two young men who murdered someone in order to see if they could get away with it. And yeah. that case had unfolded at a kind of um, influential moment in the life of Alice Lee, Harper Lee's older sister. So for a long time, these were kids who read Sherlock Holmes and they would go sit in on trials. And so she was long interested in murder and, and right. obsessed with it and followed it. And um, so I think she, she really would have been ready for the kind of true crime boom of the yeah. aughts and the, the <laughs> teens. And um, you know, she had another sister too. And, you know, they would call one another about these cases and send clippings back and forth. And so it's not so surprising that she she became interested in the Maxwell case, but it is really interesting. Um, and I think quite shocking for people to learn just how much of an investment she made. So she literally, you know, give, moves from New York to this tiny town in Alabama. And um, she lived for a while in a motel there, the same mm -hmm. as she had in Kansas. And she rented a cabin on Lake Martin. And 
you know, she spent money, she spent $1,000 getting a court transcript and bought these death certificates and did all of these extensive interviews and made all of these notes and just really spent a lot of time. Right. And that was even before she started writing. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that's nice about the book is I was able to get access to a lot of her letters. And, you know, she's writing to people to talk to them about how it's going and, you know, what she's struggling with and kind of her struggles with writing in general. And I don't think obsession is, is too strong a word. I think yeah. she was really a tortured writer. Yeah. And with this book and with some other projects, she really, in, in some kind of unfortunate ways, felt like, you know, she had this self-reinforcing idea about how writing couldn't be good unless it was kind of hard won. Right. And, you know, the more you struggled with something, the kind of more authenticity it had. And so unfortunately for her, that just meant, you know, it was she was really caught kind of betwixt and between. And it made it hard to get started because she was a perfectionist and it made her made it hard for her to hold on to work rather than discard it and think it wasn't good enough. And, you know, she would say over and over again how she could you know, work on a single page in one day. And she felt like she was lucky if she had one good page. And, <laughs> you know, would just reread paragraph after paragraph and sentence after sentence. So, yeah, I think obsession is, is the is the right word for it. Well, it's it's funny, too, or maybe strange that with, with Capote and the work on In Cold Blood, didn't she hand over something like 125 pages worth of notes to him? Yeah, so yeah. right, she was capable of obsessing over other people's work too, and yeah. um, lucky for him. Yeah, if folks have um, seen Infamous or Capote, they're these yeah. two, both of them actually are tremendous films about the writing of In Cold Blood and the relationship between Capote and Hickok and Smith, the two, two men who were... Um, convicted of murdering the Clutter family. And yeah, Harper Lee went along with him for that initial reporting trip, and she went back with him a couple of times to Kansas, and she made these meticulous notes and, you know, would sit down at the end of every day and type up where they'd gone, who they'd talked to, snippets of dialogue. She would sometimes draw these little diagrams of, like, the Clutter house or, like, part of the autopsy records. And so, yeah, he was very lucky when he um, actually sat down to write. Um, He had all of her notes. Yeah. So she she had really been – he called her an assistant researchist and Uh paid her $900. So I shouldn't make it sound like she did it just out of the kindness of her heart. You know, he he basically knew what he needed, and he brought her along for that purpose. But, um, yeah, it's it's really – it's one of the most incredible things but because the Capote archive is you know at the Library of Congress and the New York Public Library you can actually go to Manhattan and um, you can go to the New York Public Library and look at those notes and they're really incredible it's just kind of more of her writing to see and um, it's it's just extraordinary to see how careful an observer she was and kind of the keenness of her mind when it came to legal issues because she sat through the whole trial and made notes about the jury and the judge and the arguments that the lawyers were putting forward and um, that's basically what she did again in the Maxwell case. She came for the trial of the vigilante and, um, you know, interviewed the lawyers and the judge and the court reporter and, you know, everybody on the legal side and then went and interviewed everybody on the law enforcement side and interviewed, you know, friends and family of victims of the Reverend Maxwell. Right. And so just the same way, kind of sat down to do this serious journalistic project. So you had access when you when you were researching this book. Where mm. Where did you start? Yeah, what a great question. Um, and I think that sometimes I, I I talk about people who are interested in Harper Lee needing to be patient because, you know, the, the yeah. final third of the book is about her. But I, I sometimes also talk about folks who are in it just for the true crime to kind of explain why it is they might want to sit through a biography of Harper Lee. And 
The reason I think that is, is, you know, I tell the story of her trying to report this story and write her own book. And in some ways, it's confessional. A lot of what she did is exactly what I did. So, you know, when you're researching a murder, you try and get all of the investigative records you can, you try and get all of the autopsy records you can, you try and get all the legal documents you can. From every one of those, you glean, you know, the names of individuals and you try and interview them or you try and interview their spouses or their children. You know, you get as close as you can to them. And from all of that material, you start shaping your story. And you know, on top of that, when it came to Harper Lee, so I, I tried to get as many of her letters as I could, because that's right. a really good source of information about where she was and how the work was going. And when it came to the Maxwell case in particular, though, there are um, some other materials I had access to. And it's kind of the, I tell one story in the book in the first person, and it's the epilogue of the book. And it's kind of the closest I've ever felt to James Bond. And yeah. I, I got a call I was up in Maryland working on the book. I, I live in Maryland. And, you know, I moved to Alabama for a couple of spells and did what she did. I rented a house on the lake for a while. I would go down for shorter trips and stay in a hotel. And, um, you know, you'd move around the state to go to archives and interview different people. But, you know, when I was working on the writing, I was mostly up in Maryland. And so I got a, I got a call about some materials from the Harper Lee estate that were being returned to the Radney family. So the family of the lawyer, who's the second part of the book. And went down and um, it was a cache of materials that most of which had come from Tom Radney. So in an effort to help her write her book, he had given over all of his legal files and depositions and court documents and things like that. But it was a cache of materials into which she had put some of her own things too. So oh, wow. some letters and um, some notes and different books she was reading, different maps she was using. And um, in that cache of materials, there was one page of her notes, which are identical to the notes that are at the New York Public Library. You know, it's January 12th, 1978. She tells you she's interviewing the Reverend's first wife's sister. Okay. And that sister says, you know, the Reverend murdered my sister. He murdered his brother too. Here's how I know that. Gives her some details from the day that Mary Lou Maxwell, that first murder victim, was murdered. And, you know, it's this full page of notes and they're beautifully typed. There's a little bit of dialogue. It is exactly like what she did in Kansas. And wow. so it's tantalizing for yeah. me as a researcher because, boy, would I love to see. I'm sure she made hundreds of other pages exactly like that. But I, I only got to see the one. Um, and so the rest of the book, you know, is built from letters and interviews and things like that. And um, so it's nice when you when you can have access to those things and they really fill it out. But, um, you know, when it comes to Harper Lee, every letter is hard won. And, you yeah. know, every friend you get to talk or every family member you get to share their stories is hard won. And so I was glad, you know, to have four years to work on the book because a lot of folks who were no during the first year were yes by year three. Oh, that's good. Or, you know, you get one interview and it means, you know, this family member tells another one, you know, she's all right, you should talk to her. Yeah, or, you know, some neighbor of Harper Lee's in New York would encourage another neighbor to talk to me. And, you know, people just remember things across time or they think they have a letter and it takes them a while to find it. Right. And so Got to clean out the attic. And yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I actually, my favorite story in the book of a Harper Lee letter is... Um, this family in Alexander City, where the Maxwell case mostly took place, that's kind of the big town right. in the area. And um, this family had gone to the thrift shop and they had bought a used Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they were hoping just to kind of augment their kids' education. So they buy this encyclopedia. And um, the mom, it's the dad who's bought it, and the mom opens the encyclopedia. And right by the entry for Harper's Ferry, 
is a letter from Harper Lee. Wow. And, yeah. you know, it's from May of 1978. She says, you know, she's planning to come back until doomsday because she's working so hard on this book. And, you know, she hopes she doesn't fall flat on her face. But even if she does, it will be worth it because she's had such a great time in Alex City. Wow. And, you know, it's a beautiful letter. And she's like thanking someone for hosting a cocktail party for her. And she mentions a conversation she had with one of the judges in town. And, you know, it's just this lively letter. But I love it because it's really a but for the grace of God moment where sure. you're like that letter could have been, you know, what do most of Lost us do with forever. our encyclopedias? Recycle them? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. It's hard to believe there's a resale market or that someone would bother to look through it. And so, yes, I love that story because it really is go check your attic, go look under your grandmother's right. bed and, you know, just make sure you're not hiding a Harper, Harper Lee, Lee letter Lee. from posterity. So, Did you yeah. talk to the lawyer's family, to uh, Mr. Radney's family at all? I mean, I guess, is he still alive? Or? No. So okay. um, one thing to know about the book, so, so um, Harper Lee died in 2016 and right. Tom Radney died in 2011. And okay. obviously the, the reverend died quite some time ago. He was murdered in the summer of 1977. So the, the main figures are, are, are deceased and um, the book is built. In some instances, you know, there are recordings of them all being interviewed and um there there are some interviews with harper lee where she was on the record and some interviews with the reverend he was actually you know look when you're accused of murdering your second wife people start to notice and there was right. a lot of publicity at the time and um because of the voodoo rumors a couple of journalists from state newspapers and local newspapers went to interview him so there's a lot of that kind of documentary evidence but um with all of them, you you ultimately rely a lot on um, the the kind of interviewing where you're talking to you know descendants or heirs and that sure. kind of thing. So when it comes to Tom Radney, um, actually his his family all still lives in the area, and he has a son who's still practicing law in the same law That's office great. in the Maxwell House, and yeah. so they're all around and. Because of Tom Ranney's political career, you know, there were a lot of people to talk to who had known him when, when he was in the state legislature or when he ran for lieutenant governor, and he remained active in um, liberal politics. So there are a lot of sources there. But, you know, and that's another thing these three sections have in common. It's very hard to get to know the kind of essence of someone. And so yeah. in every instance, you just try and talk to as many people as you can. Yeah. And that's, you know, people who love them, people who hated them, Absolutely. you know, people who knew them in different work contexts. And, um, you know, that's that's as true of the Reverend and Tom Radney as it is of Harper Lee. And, you know, it's, it's just surprising the people we interact with in life. And when it comes to Harper Lee, obviously, a lot of people remember the one interaction they had with her. And right. some of those are more meaningful than others. And, you know, with Tom Radney, obviously, you get one story if you talk to a former law partner of his and you get a totally different one if you talk to, you know, the local head of the GOP. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, and, and, and it's fun. You just try and give readers a sense and, and a kind of fair sense of, of who the person was. And, you know, I, I, I like to joke that if you, if you make everyone happy, you've written a very bad book. Yeah. And the truth is it's hard to make anyone totally happy, but you hope that there's a sense of fairness to everyone. And, and that's certainly in the case of this book. I, I think it would have been easy to just lean into the Reverend as a menacing Right. villainous figure and I would like to think the book is as fair to him as anyone else so I, I tell you about his early life and I tell you about the um, circumstances into which he was born and that he tried to escape and you know try to look at you know what was ultimately a very entrepreneurial intellectual person right and try and lift up you know it's interesting we were talking about 
Um, you know, he obviously was charismatic. He was married three times. and He spoke he was, really formally. Exactly. He had he this read. eloquent way of yeah. speaking. And so, you know, I wanted to bring him to life. And he lived, he was actually, you know, he was married to his first wife for quite a while and, and, and lived a life before these allegations. And so I wanted the book to look at his life, not just as an alleged murderer, but as a preacher and as a pulpiter and as someone working in the mill and the rock quarry and just as a as a as a young black man trying to get ahead in right. you know totally segregated Jim Crow Alabama and so yeah I think that's part of the reason the book is um, not always just focused on the crime because right. I want to give you a sense of the context in which these crimes were committed. It felt so. it all felt very balanced and and fair and like I was sitting down with someone who was telling me a story about something that was so unbelievable, you know, you have to tell the story. Yeah, right? yeah, so, you gotta tell every part of it, so. And then there's yeah. the, southern, the southern characters, too, in this time period that you don't see as often. Sure. Such as, there was one bit of info about Tom Radney that he would sometimes accept furniture or food as payment if someone couldn't pay. I actually know a lawyer even to this day, that will still he's accepted oh, cars as payment. He's, ah, there you, you know? go. Yeah, yeah. So, so right, it's it's such a beautiful detail. And to your point, you can kind of extrapolate from that to the kind of person he is and yeah. the kind of charity he has in the community, and also just creativity and resourcefulness. So right. yeah, I felt like I I had to mention that. And um, you know, obviously, one thing this book is always doing, Furious Hours, is trying to conjure a connection to Mockingbird. Right. You know, in in some deliberate ways and some contrasting ways but obviously that's an example of we all remember the kind of conversation about entailments at the beginning yes. of Mockingbird and how Atticus was going to work for um, you know various kinds of repayment whether it was firewood or chestnuts or whatever and so yeah it's an example of it's not just fictional and to your point you know someone today who will yeah. work for that kind of fee um, so it's quite sweet to to bring in those details and bring it to life I thought you were going to bring up um, there's a there's a probate judge in the book who I just think is one of the coolest bit characters and you know he used to joke that he had paved every pig trail in Coosa County because yeah. he was really into like politicking and you know he's very good at you know getting county and state budgets to bend to his will and it's quite strange he he knew the reverend and interacted with him and actually employed him for a while as a sharecropper and um, defended him even when 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 these allegations came forward. So there's just a couple of characters like that where he feels like a very familiar kind of good old boy to me. And yeah, there he is, and 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 you want to bring him to life because he's just so interesting. And I mean, my goodness, frankly, Harper Lee is kind of the greatest of the Southern characters. You yeah. you read these stories of her up in New York City, like you know, sad to be away from home and gathering with other Southerners to eat ham because they're homesick, <laughs> and you know, just funny and witty, and you know, was was just full of. Um, you know, great stories about where she was from and good perspective about small southern towns and parochialism and regionalism and yeah. all of these things. So, I mean, you don't get yeah. that if you grow up in New York. I mean, you really don't. It's, you know, it's yeah. It's a well, it's so thing. It's true, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I go back and forth. I loved Mockingbird as a kid because I felt like I, I grew up in a place kind of like Maycomb County. And, oh, sure. Um, so it felt familiar to me. But of course, you know, when you talk to New Yorkers, they're like, that's not true. My my block was like a small town, you know, it was just yeah. compressed, compressed population. But yeah, I, I ultimately just think, I mean, regionalism is so interesting. There are different regions, but I'm very interested in the South. And it was a total delight to get to spend so much time in Alabama and to get to think about 
her as a Southern storyteller because she's in this kind of interesting moment for Southern writers. And she's often just kind of presented sui generis. And we forget that she was basically a contemporary of Flannery O'Connor's. And, right, absolutely. You know, she was at the University of Alabama just a little while before Gay Talese. Oh, so wow. there again, you like start thinking about the new journalists and the, the actual context in, in which she was writing. So, right. yeah, it's fun. I, I like doing that kind of deep and deliberate history. And, and, and hopefully the book still has a kind of trajectory around that you don't feel like you're bogged down by it it just feels interesting and oh, yeah. welcome detours absolutely yeah it's it's a great read i'm looking forward to uh learning a lot more about harper lee even you know after reading this book because i feel like i guess people are still learning about her and um you know it's, yeah it's totally and you know i just think i love to read and i love books that kind of point me in the direction of other books and I just think that's how books are made with a bunch of other books and yeah. if you're a novelist it's because you're making an homage to Toni Morrison or William Faulkner or something like that and so one of the things I've so far been really pleased with about Furious Hours is I get these letters from folks who have decided you know they go back and they read Mockingbird and they read Watchmen and they read In yeah. Cold Blood and they read Let Us Now Praise Famous Men and yeah. you know it sends you in the direction of, of other good fiction and, and non-fiction books so yeah, it's, it's not an obligatory reading list, but hopefully sure. just one you're, you have an appetite for on well, the other side of it. I'll ask you one last question. What are you reading now? What's, what's a uh, book that's been published within the last year or so, if you have time even? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Read. So I, I'm... I, I love to read and I'm always reading um, I'm always reading for work and yeah. you know I review books for the New Yorker and I'm kind of tinkering with an idea that I think will be book two, but um, I'm often trying to read something old yeah, I feel like our culture is always kind of pointing us in the direction of the new and the conversation and the kind of infrastructure around books is so often coercive towards the new. And so I'm always trying to read something 19th century or older, and I love religion, so sometimes I'm just totally trapped in the Reformation. But <laughs> I am reading something very, very new. In fact, it, it's, it's just coming out this month, and it's a memoir called The Yellow House. Okay. And it's by a writer... Um, whose family is from New Orleans, and uh, her name is Sarah Broom, and it's a, yeah. it's a beautifully written memoir and um, does something, you know, here we are talking about regionalism and place. It's a kind of psychogeography. So she's writing about New Orleans and this house that her family owned and the kind of intergenerational stories there and intergenerational trauma um, inflicted on this part of the city and on the city itself and just on this part of the country and so it's quite beautifully written and I'm I'm really enjoying it and I'm obsessed with siblings. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love to think about how people kind of born into the same circumstances can just lead such wildly different lives which is certainly true for the Reverend and also true for Harper Lee and um, I'm one of three sisters so I'm just interested in it and um, Sarah is one of 12. Oh, so gosh. it's just a very big family Catholic and a lot family, of right? Um, yeah, a lot of a lot of competing um, children and, and stories of their family and stories of this house. So it's quite beautiful, and, and I'm delighted to be reading it. I, I I just think quite often I veer in the other direction of not wanting to read contemporary things, and I I have this kind of conservative idea about you know I'll read something time tested and yeah. I love to read scripture too so I'm often just kind of trapped in the King James Bible but um, I'm very glad to be reading this now and it feels like an important book to be reading now yeah there's there's a lot um, that I think can help us think about how to build better communities and and how to be more honest about um, our neighbors and about um, the things we need and, and the things, the injustices we witness. So yeah, it's called The Yellow House, Sarah okay. Broom. I'll have to check that out. I've seen it 
on one of the many newsletters I subscribe to. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of it all. I mean, we we live in a kind of golden age of all things bookish, and and I'm grateful for it. But um, and and sometimes it's good to you know sink your teeth into something new. So that's the one I'm I'm currently making my way through. Well, that's awesome. I feel like I could ask you a million more questions, but we should probably go ahead and you know, wrap up. Um, I'm so glad that Casey Sepp was able to come and talk to us about Furious Hours. She is touring now with her book, and she'll also be back November 16th at the Kentucky Book Fair at Alltech Arena's uh, The Horse Park, and it'll be from 9 to 4. So we're happy to have Casey with us then, and thank you so much for coming and talking Absolutely. about Absolutely. Total pleasure. Great awesome. to be in Lexington, and can't wait to be back. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.